Anyway, the time is 10.35 and you're listening to Brunch with me, Sadia. And at this time, or around this time, we are joined by Cruz McCalligan with her audio column. And today she talks cookbooks. Good morning to you, Cruz. <laughs> I was about to say good afternoon, Sadia. So it's good morning. I was just about to say afternoon and then I just stopped myself right then. So how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. It's lovely to hear you. We haven't spoken in a few months, I think. Yeah, it's good to be here. Summer's in the way and things like that as well. Yeah, I know. It seems like so much has happened in the last two, three months. And obviously you have a new addition to your family as well. I do. I have a baby, so I'm very busy. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> but um, but I did choose today's audio column topic knowing that I would be speaking to you, mm-hmm. Sadia. Oh, because good. you are um, you are a, a foodie, a food connoisseur. You're a passionate person about food, and you've done lots of programs for RTHK about cooking mm. and food and recipes and cuisine. And so I thought we're going to talk about cookbooks. What a build up! Thought, All right, what yeah. a build up! All right, great. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I want to know first mm. because I was looking at my selection of cookbooks, mm-hmm. which is what inspired this audio column, mm-hmm. um, because my brain is quite postpartum scrambled at the moment, and I forget what people eat, and I have a whole family to feed. Mm-hmm. So I was looking at my cookbooks, and it's quite a funny selection, if I'm being honest. Mm. I have quite a weird little selection of cookbooks but I would love to know what your cookbook collection is like if you have one. Yes I do actually I have a massive uh, collection of cookbooks because going back in time when uh, the internet didn't really give you <laughs> give you too many <laughs> recipes I used to collect it but the, one of the most valuable things that I have is a little folder a little diary thing that I wrote down all the recipes that my mum used to make and it's all written in like really rubbish writing and stuff um, but I, I just kind of I used to love the feel of cookbooks and I still actually enjoy putting a cookbook in front of me and looking at the recipe. But but all of them are in a loft in London. <laughs> and oh. I don't have many of them here in in Hong Kong because, you know, there's just no space. So so they're all packed away. And, and often I think, oh, I want that cookbook, but um, I can't get access to it now. So um, I just settled for Google. <laughs> well, there we go. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, it's so easy now. Although I have to say, I do laugh at the kind of modern recipe blog format on Google that everyone gets frustrated with, where it doesn't just go straight into the recipe. It's this sort of long preamble (laughs) to someone's, this is a recipe for chicken that I found when traveling in Portugal in 2006. And it's like, I don't need your life history. I need the ingredient list. That's what, and you're scrolling down the page. Have you ever had that experience? Yeah. And you're scrolling and scrolling oh, it's so and scrolling. frustrating. Absolutely, oh. yeah. Anyway, so I do laugh about that a little bit because I do have that happen quite a lot where I'm like, oh, just get to the recipe already. Anyway, we're going to talk about cookbooks a little bit, um, starting with their kind of the history of them. So early cookbooks um, in the 15th and 16th centuries in Western Europe. Okay, so this was the, the sort of oldest published recipe collections and I have to say that when I was doing this research it didn't seem very uh it was quite western centric in terms of the history of cookbooks right whereas I know that many other cultures culinary cultures around the world probably had their own cookbook traditions or oratory traditions traditions around passing their recipes but the research I found it tended to be quite westernized. So when we look at Western Europe, the oldest published recipe collections emanated from palaces of monarchs and princes. Um, of course, at this point in time, in the 15th, 16th century, nobody was trying to make a business out of selling cookbooks. What they were trying to do was create within a court culture 
um, this kind of memoir for chief stewards and for royalty to demonstrate the luxury of their banquets. It was more like a record of the mm. things that they would eat, mm. right? Now, of course, technology broadened the intended audiences. And when you have the kind of introduction of modern printing, it made it a little bit more viable to think beyond just princes and monarchs. And that's when you had publishers starting to, you know, in the following centuries, not necessarily the 15th century, people started putting out cookbooks with kind of less wealthy and exclusive readers in mind. Um, and it's quite funny if we look in 1847 in English, um, in England, sorry, there was um, plain cookery for the working classes. <laughs> it sounds like, sounds like a cookbook I could do with, to be honest. Um, but of course, as new ideas formed around equality and democracy and social stratification, it kind of got a bit ridiculous to have these sort of books of cooking for the rich and books of cooking for the poor. It wasn't really effective marketing. But culinary literature has always had kind of class markers. Mm. And there's a really interesting book someone wrote called Henry Notica, who wrote this book called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous Cookbook. Um, and he kind of has written a lot about the history of cookbooks. It's really fascinating, really. Um, but it's this idea, again, of like what you're suggesting to people about what kind of food you eat and like the access to it. I have to say, personally, I find it very frustrating sometimes when I am looking for a cookbook or a recipe book and um, you pick something up and there will be like markers that suggest that it's outside of either my capabilities or my budget with yes. some sort of like inclusion of ingredients that are quite hard to find or quite exclusive and you think well this has kind of already put me in a box because I'm not going to be able to make this recipe mm. if I don't have this saffron or whatever it is um, but of course it's really interesting that we have this idea that like um, different kinds of uh, segments of society had these sorts of cookbooks that, that came and um, it was also uh, what was really interesting is um, the fact that that kind of during the 18th century um, in Germany and England, many of the books were written by women who um, kind of saw what was needed um, in, in a better way. So they had a more, what's interesting, and like we talk about this in very gender stereotype terms, mm -hmm. but women having like the, the kind of their realm being the domestic sphere, for at example, that time, absolutely. At that time, yes. had that understanding that men didn't have. So they <laughs> knew, they knew like how many people you'd need to make something, how to simplify a dish, how to actually, you know, time its preparation. They had that understanding in a way that other people didn't. You know, mm. men didn't have that. So you could, you know, they could be very good at eating, but they didn't really know what had to go into the logistics of it. It was a multitasking thing, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So it's quite interesting. Um, and of course, like the more that people's literacy rates kind of increased, um, this also became, a, uh, you know, where people had increased um, incomes and understanding and knowledge. So then, you know, publishers in the 19th century now could open it up and you could have different kinds of um, books for different kinds of people around cookbooks. But it is, if we look back, this kind of idea of like sort of eclectic mixes of cookbooks that we all seem to have. As you said, you've got those, like that, that spectrum from like, you know, fancy celebrity chef cookbook right down to roll the deck kind of thing with handwritten recipes mm, from grandma, mm, right? Mm. Like there's that beautiful spectrum as well. Um, and that cookbooks sort of seem to be a household staple. Like I think about it quite often. I'm like, I've always seemed to have, from the minute I was living by myself, I've had a couple of cookbooks. They might not have been very exciting, but I've always had some. Um, and I think what's um, interesting about them is it's not always like this idea of just 
um, like following recipes to a T. It's that kind of ideas again. It's like this is what people could eat mm, you know, with mm. with these things that you might have in your cupboard. Um, but yeah, so it's it's. Um, I think that's quite a, a really fascinating idea. And of course, like I wonder what happened with cookbooks when we had that idea of like um, that kind of broadcasting of recipes, like watching. I remember in Hong Kong when I was a child and it would be like at the same sort of time every evening, we'd have Yan Can Cook on Hong Kong TV uh-huh, uh-huh. with Martin Yan, the chef, would be doing like a cooking demonstration. And it was really interesting because I don't think I've ever seen any of his cooking books, but we'd always see his program, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. But it was that same kind of idea of like following a recipe, following something along. Um, but as, as I said, like we've got this idea of like women being the ones who are to, to the to kind of have this driving the um, the the proliferation of cookbooks because they have a bit more of an understanding about what is actually required. They want it to be a practical tool in kind of within the sisterhood, I suppose, of like passing it on to one another yeah. to okay. have that kind of idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's also, um, but yeah, so it's, and of course there's different periods in time where it's been um, very creative or helpful for people to have a cookbook um, because of the situations they've been in. So for example, um, during World Wars in the early, the mid-1900s, food was scarce it was um, specific it had a a very different meaning you know it was all about thriftiness and preservation and rationing and efficiency and stretching ingredients you know and um, but after World War II as men came home and women were then expected to be more traditional housewives right that's when you suddenly have cookbooks um, you know rising with this kind of industrialized canned processed food as well and you have that idea of you know different kinds of um cooking post-war cookbooks um being sort of determining a woman's worth because of how you could able to provide for your family what you would be able to provide that would make it look like you had this perfect home life um and things like that so that's i always thought that was very interesting i have to say i do have a morbid fascination and i don't know if you've seen these Mm. but like that kind of 1970s cookbooks where it was like a, a, a style of food that I don't think anybody eats anymore, <laughs> but we all kind of mock now, like sort of sardine, banana, yeah. souffle type thing. Uh, yeah, I have a. I think I have a whole range of Marks and Spencers books that used to come out, and this was back in the eighties, probably. And I remember giving that those books um, to my mum on her birthday. An anniversary mm. and things like that, and she would just hand them back to me because I would, I would end up having them. But they had some really weird and wonderful recipes, great pictures and things, but really things that I was thinking, oh, where did that come from? You know, over obviously the kind of things like the pineapple upside down cake and stuff like that, but <laughs> but other things that the souffles and very traditional things, but with a little bit of a, a, a twist to them, you know, trying to make it a little bit more creative. Oh, funny, but it is funny how that kind of like that that yeah like that that sort of um, the the trends of food and I always find those sort of nineteen seventies ones um, quite fascinating where they have like everything's in a jelly 
everything's gelatinized <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or everything's a mousse. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like or fondues, like, lots of fondues. Or fondue, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's quite it's quite funny. Um, and then, you know, like you look at those recipe books and in their heyday, they would have just been these beautiful spreads and everyone would have been like, wow, that's so inventive and innovative and really and cutting edge cooking. cooks with, ne- <laughs> with nice maxis on. <laughs> yes, exactly. Whereas now you look back on these things and you're like, I don't know if I'd want a jellied, a jellied meat roll, <laughs> you know. Um, but it is—it's really fascinating. So, but cookbooks—I mean, it's—it's—it's it's, it's funny in kind of um, looking at cookbooks in terms of how they like culturally they're really informed by different things. Like, I know that I had a cookbook that I um, like I passed—I passed to my husband a couple of years ago as a birthday gift, which was called Thug Kitchen, and it was a—it was during a health kick. And it was all, it was really funny, actually. It was an interesting cultural kind of thing. It was like a vegan cookbook. Not mm-hmm. that I'm a vegan or he's a vegan. But it was all done with, like, it was written with really funny kind of, like, urban language. Mm-hmm. So it was mm-hmm. quite, it wasn't rude well, or derogatory. chop it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just exactly that, Sadie. It had yeah. this, like, really funny tone of voice. Yeah. And it was like... It was what's interesting is it's all about kind of vegetables and vegan food, and then it's got this real thug kitchen, this real like kind of thuggish sort of urban voice for like you know just whack the carrot, yeah. smash them up, smash that kind up. of thing. <laughs> and it was it's really funny, and it was just kind of making it like elevating those ingredients, which you know to this kind of level of being this really cool, edgy thing. That sounds quite good actually. Yeah, it's it's a great book. Um, and then of course you know like I'm always I've always been a massive fan of Jamie Oliver. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say Jamie yeah. Oliver is a really uh, a classic one to do to use language like that while he's cooking you know just smash it up doesn't matter what it looks like it's all right just bung it in (laughs) exactly exactly and like his cookbooks kind of reflect that as well you know i think i've had ones like 30 minute meals five like five ingredient recipes things like that and it's interesting in terms of the cookbooks of like what you're using them for but it is um it's also one of those things that they can be very intimidating you know if someone gave me and someone like i have been gifted before like some really nice cookbooks which for example have used ingredients that are a little bit I remember my mum was really good at this. She she had this beautiful cookbook she got in Myanmar when she was living there, and it was all these sort of Myanmar recipes. Um, but they also had a lot of ingredients that were really foreign to me mm-hmm. that I'd never cooked with, like tamarind paste or certain herbs and spices and mm. things like that. And she was um, when she was living there, she got to know all these ingredients really well, and it became second nature to have shrimp paste and things, yes, and, yes, like fish, yes. all these sorts of different things, like became like really accessible but I remember looking at this um, cookbook and just desperately wanting to make all of these recipes and just feeling like everything was just a little bit outside of of, of what I what I knew what I knew right mm, mm, mm. so you kind of need to stretch yourself but it can be intimidating sometimes when you pick up a recipe book and you're like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do this or if you find the recipe preparation time is two and a half hours well it's out or, of your comfort zone some of the techniques that they're saying okay do this and, and fold this in and do this and and I find that look I can't faff around I really just need a simple recipe which I can cook quickly because I don't have patience that's the problem if I'm cooking I don't want this major technique that you've got to do this and do that and then separate this if anything says separate eggs i don't do it (laughs) (laughs) i I can i can agree with that that would be no i'm not gonna do that it's fiddly yeah it's fiddly um but it is interesting that people have this idea of like you know how do we have we gain confidence and you think a recipe book would help people gain confidence but actually a lot of people say that um 
you know, when you overcomplicate cooking, it can put a lot of pressure on people. And, um, and that even people who are really, really good cooks and have a lot of recipe books, like I was looking and saw that Heston Blumenthal, you know, the um, mm, quite mm. famous British chef. He does chef. all the things with all sorts yeah. of weird stuff, right? The mm. weird and wonderful recipes are extremely intricate and extravagant and complex. Um, but he has over 400 recipe books. Wow. He's mm. over 400. But I think what, um, what it comes down to is like people who follow recipes to the letter. And I think this is why I've never been a baker, Sadia, because baking requires Precision. following a recipe. Yes. You know, you have to have patience yes. and you have to have the right I'm amount. I'm a baker, of but things. I don't follow it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's reassuring for me. Maybe I still have a future in it then. Um, but yeah, but a lot of people will say like, you know, for it's, it's that idea that of, you know, how do you, how do you kind of feel confident when you're working with a, co- um, a, a, a cookbook? And it's actually the experiment, um, experimentation that you have. You know, a lot of us become detached from our sensory experience of food um, because, you know, it seems complicated when you break things down if you haven't had that exposure. And I remember like feeling um, when I first started living by myself and cooking for myself, you d- I did have this kind of really empowered feeling at the time where I was very grateful to my mum for teaching me some of the mm, fundamentals of mm, cooking. Mm. Because if you didn't have the fundamentals of just knowing how to put onion and garlic in a pan with some oil first and then add the things to it, the basic fundamentals, you don't have a lot of foundation to experiment from and you'd get really flustered with a recipe, I can imagine, you know. Yeah. It's good to go um, from childhood. I remember giving my children the Usborne, I think it was the whole series of books for children and cooking and, and my kids used to pick up recipes from there so they were kind of familiar with using cookbooks so that's quite a nice thing to wean your kids on actually. Mm. Absolutely. And that also that idea of like, um, as you said, like learning about where ingredients come from, how they work together, what different flavors are, things like that, the processes, because it's, it's like kind of a bit like learning to swim. If you don't really pick it up when you're young, it gets harder and harder as you get older. Mm. Um, and I do think that's, um, that's what's quite interesting about like this idea of kind of, um, of, of cookbooks is that, you know, people can think of them as a sort of like Bible you have to follow to the letter. But a lot of the time, um, people say like one of the most effective things is about using your own senses and your common sense yes. and, um, looking at recipe and, and being able to think of it as ideas as well, mm-hmm. which is, um, which is really, which I think is a really, um, effective way of doing things. I mean, like, I think I've always had, and within my own family, I'm not sure what food was like for you with your children when you were when they were growing up or when you were growing up yourself. We've always kind of had like one pot wonder type meals with maybe like a salad on the side or something like that, um, as opposed to kind of like really intricately arranged. Yeah. Um, We've you know. always tried to give the children um, as much variety of tastes as possible. And there was always a rule on our, on our table with our kids that, you know, whatever it is, you have to eat it. You have to at least try it in front of you. You cannot just say, no, I'm not going to eat that because I don't like the look of it. So they mm. would always have to finish what, there was, what was on their plate. Um, you know, so so it's like really getting them used to that. But it's also about just, you know, um, getting them interested in food, not only as just a thing that they just need to fill up, but something that they can work with and they can create with as well. You see, so that was quite good. And they both like cooking, actually, both my kids do. 
Oh, well, that's awesome. And I think you're absolutely right. I think it's always like, we, I try to do that with my kids as well. I have one daughter who will eat absolutely everything. She is a proper Hong Kong girl. She is a total, total foodie. And the other one, we beg her to just try. Mm. You don't have to eat it all. Just try it. Just try it. I think this funny. Um, somebody said this on the program yesterday. They were saying when they were getting kids to, you know, my guest yesterday. Um, and she was saying that, well, I usually just try and get them to eat it by saying, oh, I love this. This is so nice. And... Um, mm. You know, not to say, look, you've got to try it, not to force them to have it, but just to say, oh, this is so lovely. This is one of my favorite things. And then they think, oh, really, is it? And then they might be tempted to sort of try it. So it's probably just trying to get them to see it from a different perspective. Mm. And I think that's part of what's interesting about cookbooks themselves is they do demystify this idea of like suddenly you're presented with something. And you just, it's like a lot of expectation. Like, is it going to be delicious? Is it not going to be delicious? Whereas with a cookbook, you're part of the process. You're invested in the final journey from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, um, that's really interesting. But I think, yeah, I mean, I was just, I was just, I do definitely, especially during kind of some of the worst COVID times this year mm-hmm. where we were spending a lot of time at home, I got really into cooking again um, and just really like pulling out my cookbooks and mainly just for ideas because, I just thought, you know, it's it's interesting. There'll never be there'll never be a perfect cookbook for um, there'll never be a perfect cookbook for like the exact kind of cultural time and place you're in right now. Like mm-hmm. living in Hong Kong, we have certain ingredients we don't have other ingredients, or you know, maybe some are really expensive or really inaccessible. Or you know, I live in quite a local area. You know, what can I buy that's quite um, that's that's easy to buy here? I'm not going to find you know like quite. Um, you know, luxury sort of tidbits of stuff very easily where I live. Um, but I do think it's like that feeling of getting really excited about food and ingredients mm. again. I think on an average day, I probably have a conversation with my family members, my mum or my sister, about like, I've got this in the freezer. What, what can I, I make, make with it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think on a daily basis, we that's, have this conversation. I think that's a common one everywhere. Listen, Cruz, this is brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, any last bits to end with? I do. I have one quote mm-hmm. from Molly Weisenberg, who said that she hates the notion of a secret recipe. Recipes are by nature derivative and meant to be shared. That is how they improve, are changed, how new ideas are formed. To stop a recipe in its tracks, to label it a secret just seems mean. Brilliant. That's great. Thank I love you that quote. ever so much, No problem. Chris. I look forward to talking to you again when I'm on.